Thank you so much, Linus, for such a lovely introduction. And uh, I really appreciate uh, being here. This is actually, oh, thank you so much. Uh, this is my uh, second visit. Uh, I came with my wife, Marika, uh, some months ago when we were uh, bringing uh, the paintings and uh, many of the pieces of sculpture from our home in South Bend, Indiana, uh, here for the exhibition. And I was just overwhelmed uh, when I walked into the room to see how beautifully uh, the material is, uh, is displayed here. And I absolutely love uh, the way in which the architecture now, uh, maybe we can't take it away after uh, this is over, uh, in the sense of it uh, providing a capital uh, for the columns we might call in the, uh, uh, the room supporting the great mezzanine above. But thank you all for being here this evening. Uh, I have uh, been very, very blessed in terms of uh, being able to teach and to practice architecture uh, in terms of uh, both uh, opportunities, uh, both as a teacher, of course, to my students and, and others, uh, and myself through that process, uh, but also uh, through the opportunity to, uh, to build. Uh, so I'll uh, talk about a number of aspects of uh, what my profession as a architect uh, and the various uh, ways in which uh, I, describe, I got uh, involved with uh, uh, the field. Uh, fortunately, I was able to grow up in uh, Berkeley, California, uh, which of course is notorious in many circles. Uh, and on the other hand, uh, Berkeley uh, is a city uh, which goes back to the late 19th century, and especially around 1900, uh, there was a very, very strong movement across the United States uh, that was responding to the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris uh, in particular, uh, a, a traditional uh, type of architecture, of course, uh, but also uh, which in the kind of the area of Berkeley on the West Coast and so forth, so far away uh, from uh, New York or other places on the East or in the Midwest, uh, that uh, it was really had a certain freedom in the way in which uh, the architects uh, utilized uh, the classical uh, tradition and education they had at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and elsewhere. And so there's uh, sort of a different quality or character uh, to the classical architecture Berkeley, and that was very exciting. Uh, also, I was able as a teenager uh, to go to dancing classes, which were uh, in the house uh, in the Berkeley Hills uh, that had been built as a uh, kind of a, a special place uh, for the family uh, who uh, were uh, dancers uh, who followed kind of ideas of, of um, modern dance, uh, but through a classical perspective also. And uh, in, that in my fortunate case, uh, when I was a teenager, uh, the house was opened by uh, the family uh, to have dancing parties every Friday, uh, not just dancing parties where you came. The boys had to be introduced to the opportunity by the girls. And uh, in addition to that, uh, then uh, it was very, uh, very much a, a um, kind of a wonderful setting, but also one that had uh, strict rules and regulations, which is good for uh, young people to be associated with, but also uh, in the case of, say, becoming an architect, uh, ultimately, uh, I'm very much interested in uh, the rules of architecture if we're talking about any sorts, and we'll talk, I'll talk about that a little later. Uh, but uh, that those rules are also uh, uh, applied not as kind of uh, difficult uh, things that have to be um, limiting, uh, but in fact, uh, that can be uh, interpreted and, and uh, uh, made into a, a real um, indication uh, for people who are using the buildings or even walking by, uh, that there is a meaning uh, to the buildings, but also uh, a vitality, which is the main thing uh, that's important. So um, do I press just the circle? Oh, oh yes, thank you. And then. I don't think I need that then. Thank you so much. Yeah, so uh, in any case, uh, uh, I, I want to start with a quiz. Here we are in an academic situation, right? This happens every day for you. Uh, okay, we've got uh, two figures here, both uh, males, both elderly, older in life. Um, can uh, 
anybody to shout out uh, who the one on the left is? Who? Homer. Great. We've got some good classicists here. How many people knew Homer? You can all raise your hands, by the way. Okay. Um, and then right to the next, to, uh, to the right side. Pardon me? Uh, if Don yes, Dante is wonderful, uh, but uh, he's a little early for this fellow, actually. Thank you for, for volunteering that. And do volunteer. Just uh, any other people come to mind here? You all know. Pardon? Uh, not quite so old. <laughs> Thank you. He's actually living until fairly recent years. He looks Greek. He isn't Greek. Johnny. Cash. <laughs> this is Johnny Cash in his, in his late, late years. And uh, uh, both of these were sculpted by my son, Andrew. Uh, and uh, Andrew enjoys doing a lot of different types of sculpture, as you can see in the capitals and so forth. But uh, he is uh, uh, really interested in uh, the idea of a herm. Uh, and these, as you uh, probably know, uh, are figures, especially maybe like, uh, uh, like Homer, uh, who would be placed on a, uh, a location in, to define uh, the areas of property. Uh, so uh, when you go to the, the um, uh, museum at the Vatican, for example, you'll see lots of uh, authentic ancient as well as uh, Renaissance uh, herms. Next, please. Now, if uh, we, we're going to be talking about classical architecture, but we'll also be talking about at least one other form of architecture or uh, of uh, a different expression of architecture later on to talk about the, uh, really the um, elements that you see here in Andrew's sculpture and in the drawings that I've done over the last 15 years as I've been working with the monks at Clear Creek. Uh, to develop uh, the design for the building, uh, and also uh, then to show the client is one of the primary things, uh, what the finished building uh, would be like, as opposed to just looking at flat uh, images in, in uh, working drawings, uh, as we would make to get a building built, uh, then to make the, uh, the uh, three-dimensional structure, of course, brings it to life. Uh, but here is a, a, just a photograph here, it's not my painting, uh, but it's a, uh, a grouping of uh, building structures. Uh, anyone recognize this? I just came in from the airport and it only took, what, 40 minutes or less uh, to come in from uh, the big city nearby. Um, so that's one hint. Oh, I already said. Okay, sorry, I should have been just as coy as the previous one. Uh, but in any case, uh, anybody been here? To, uh, do you recognize? Okay, great. And if you haven't, and while you're here at school, if you're students, uh, I really recommend you're visiting the museum in general. Uh, but this is a large room within Carnegie uh, that is uh, uh, filled with imitations or, or uh, casts of ancient buildings. In this particular case, all of these are buildings from what culture? Oh, speak up. Greek. 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 Okay. Terrific. And uh, in fact, uh, these. So what? What this big room is? It's a, probably at least uh, uh, you know three times the size of this, if not bigger. Uh, it was very popular in 1900 or so, uh, both in Europe and also in cities like uh, this area, uh, where architecture was displayed. Uh, in a museum as, as though it was a work of art itself. And it was partially uh, because of the interest in a classical architecture in 1900 or so, uh, but it was also the fact that these large, uh, in, uh, excuse me, these large museums uh, didn't have a lot of stuff that they had acquired yet. Uh, so that this was also an interesting thing, but also there was lots of room to use this. Fortunately, the uh, Carnegie is the only place in the United States that has not destroyed their uh, casts like these. And so it really is unique, in fact, in this country. Uh, but what we're looking at here, then, are three primary buildings uh, in the city of Athens. 
that are, uh, became paradigms, really, in the 18th century uh, for Europeans and ultimately Americans to uh, use as models for new buildings. Uh, and so it would be uh, a, very much an important aspect, not only to uh, learn to draw them and so forth, but then how do you uh, make and make uh, modifications, potentially, uh, for these ancient buildings to make new buildings today. Uh, in particular, on the center, I'll just focus on that, uh, is the Lysicrates Monument, uh, which is a building which is not a temple, as we see on either side. You see the uh, Erechtheum here on the right, or another uh, building which was a, a sacred building. Uh, but in the center, it's a trophy, essentially. And at this scale, these are all the right scale of the original building, uh, this is a trophy uh, for a very wealthy young man, presumably, uh, who got together a group of other young men who could sing well and so forth, and there would be uh, uh, the opportunity for different groups like this, choral groups, to, com com uh, to um, you know, try to win the prize. And this uh, person won the prize, in addition, after the, of course, the, the singing went away, in, in, except in people's memories, uh, but in this case, he was wealthy and built this monument, Lysicrates Monument. And so these are buildings that uh, in the 1700s uh, became uh, models for new buildings in, in uh, Europe, for example, and ultimately in the United States. Next, please. Uh, so we've got uh, a culture that we've just been looking at in that case that represents, and here in this vicinity, of a real uh, appreciation for antiquity. Now, something happened uh, in the year nine, oh, a uh, hundred years ago, uh, in which there was a revolution against the idea of what we would call classical architecture, that those would be a symbol for. Uh, and so we have what, what would be a name, uh, for those of you in art history or so, uh, that would be the style or the approach or the movement in architecture in this period, and it's still growing and living very, very strong. Uh, the Bauhaus is one word uh, for an aspect of modernism in the broader sense. So I would say this, these are, neither of these are Bauhaus in the sense that that was a German uh, cultural uh, movement, which was very similar in the sense of abstraction in architecture. And uh, in terms of both, and I appreciate your mentioning that, widens it out, uh, but it also uh, is something, no matter exactly what the style is, which is a little varied from architect to architect, uh, but it's, it's one in which everything that relates to the historical tradition of, say, the Lysicrates Monument and thousands of other buildings was just thrown out. And in fact, uh, that, that is still very much uh, the main approach to architecture today as well. So we've had 115 years, let's say, of this mentality which is very, very strongly against uh, the idea of anything that imitates something from antiquity or from the Renaissance uh, or is a classical building that we might uh, uh, have seen and will continue to, fortunately. There is now a re re revival, you might say, of the classical. It's a small group, and it's one thing that at Notre Dame uh, we were very fortunate to have support uh, from the beginning, 30 years ago now, uh, to uh, reanimate the classical method of designing. And uh, that's been successful for our students also because uh, there are firms uh, which are also taking that and have been over the last 30 years. And so our students are very much uh, ready to move into those offices, but very much appreciated by their, uh, their offices as well. So in this case, I'll go through this quickly. We shouldn't be looking at it for too long. It will make you scared. Uh, uh, but we've got on the right uh, Le Corbusier. This may be a name who's uh, famous. Uh, he, a French man, and in the teens, uh, he began to make uh, architecture that was what we would call modernist architecture. Uh, one of his most famous buildings is a Catholic chapel, uh, which we see 
diagonally to him uh, in the white building with the kind of funny, it's often shown, or it has been shown in, in uh, oh, the New Yorker and place, places like that, like a, a nun who's wearing a big wimple. Don't see those too often walking down the street, those women, but uh, nonetheless, you'll, you probably all remember that, so ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> Okay, but anyway, it's an abstracted building. It is a building that is not, uh, is not symmetrical when you walk inside. Uh, it's also a building that, unfortunately, uh, like Protestant uh, buildings often have, has a nave uh, where the, the floor is actually sloping down. Uh, and you have probably seen a lot of those lately, thanks to Corbusier and others. Uh, there's a much more recent uh, architect who's still alive and practicing. Uh, Mr. Meyer here on the left, and he was given the job uh, of 2000 uh, to build the architecture for uh, the, the um, uh, sacred building for the Catholic Church uh, at the millennium. Uh, so we see that here, and I won't go into it too much, but maybe you've already seen that uh, there are lots of similarities. Uh, generally, uh, Mr. Meyer is a copycat, and uh, that's, uh, you know, he's always presenting himself and other people present him as being such a br brilliant person. Uh, but everything that he does as an architect is not only modernist, but it's also based uh, to, uh, to kind of copy uh, other, the works of other people often uh, of earlier times. Next, please. Now, that kind of work is, I won't dwell on it, but it's, uh, it's, as I've said, worldwide, it's absolutely the ubiquitous uh, type and style of architecture. Uh, it's just invaded over a long period of time, and it's very much there. Uh, and throughout other cultures than, say, the Western culture, it's just, uh, as I say, throughout. Um, now, one thing that uh, happened, though, that was really at the beginnings, one might say, of this glint of hope uh, that perhaps we didn't have to have modernist architecture uh, forever, uh, was a exhibition in 1980 uh, for the Venice Biennale. That's a exhibition that occurs every four years in Venice. And in this particular, at that particular time, uh, whereas many of the exhibitions and so forth are about painting and sculpture and other works of art, uh, this was the introduction of architecture as a art uh, within the Biennale, and that still keeps going on. But this also was a time uh, when the person who uh, kind of pushed for this idea and had a lot of clout, Paolo Portoghese, Italian, uh, was uh, the first time in which uh, he was able to call uh, the works of architects uh, together who were not doing modernist architecture. Uh, it, it's still very plain, particularly uh, well, we'll get into that. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there was a whole variety of 20 architects who were designed, who were uh, asked to make uh, facades, like the one on the right here by Venturi, Rausch, and Brown. And uh, so that was a movement where it's, it's does it look like a, uh, say, a Sunday uh, joke in the newspaper, maybe? A little bit? I mean, you wouldn't. Well, first of all, you wouldn't want to walk under it if it were real, because it just might go right? But in addition to that, uh, it's, it's a play. Uh, and this is still what Venturi does, essentially. It's very famous, but this, this was his thing, uh, to make these cartoons. So we've got Doric architecture here. Anybody know the Doric architecture? In terms of comment? Uh, OK, yeah. Um, how about suggesting a few things? Uh, what, what are Doric features? That's part of a language of Greek architecture. Uh-huh. That's fine, go ahead. Uh-huh. Oh. Okay, you're, you're right, good word. The entesis, it's a Greek word. And for column shafts, it means that the column doesn't, frankly, go just up like this. It has a life to it, you might say. And uh, so that at the, at the neck of it, the column, the yellow ones here, the three, 
then you start with a small diameter, and then it becomes bigger and bigger in diameter, of course, as you can see here, as it goes down. And uh, this is, you know, he's, he's joking all the time, so he hasn't been interested in studying what it, the entesis might be, and there's a lot of variation, but uh, the, 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 protect, the um, shape of these particular ones is just gross, but that's sort of what he's after. So again, it's architecture uh, in which uh, uh, people are playing games with it intentionally. And uh, so they're, anyway, they're very successful still. Um, on the upper part, I'll just, oh, okay, let's just forget some of the other parts. Uh, but how about the triangle on top? Now, do you see some thing that you might recognize? Pardon? Is it the riddle about what walks on two legs in the, in the morning and two legs in the noon? Oh, oh, I love that. Um, no, I, but I'll have to figure out a way of a adding that to my next lecture. <laughs> Uh, but, but yeah, there are three, of course, that's all wrong, because if you're going to be taking, uh, going into the temple, uh, you don't want to go like that uh, in, if you're on axis. Uh, but uh, uh, no, what I was really thinking of is the triangle at the top. So we've got one figure standing up, and then two amoebae uh, kind of crawling toward, I guess you might say. Well, that is a, a, a very important part of Greek and other architecture uh, in terms of showing the gods there, for example, if it's a Greek, ancient Greek uh, building, and uh, other aspects, uh, telling stories through the sculpture. But we can't tell if there are three men or three women there or, or what. You know, so that intentionally he's fooling around, you might say, uh, to show something that's an allusion to something from antiquity or many other later examples that we're imitating that, uh, but that it's, it's just, it, it doesn't, you can't read it, can't tell the story. Okay, the other one, pardon me? Oh, uh, on the other side was a more serious building, that's the AT&T building, and you know, that was the most powerful uh, corporation in the United States in 1980, uh, and there, Philip Johnson, who was a modernist architecture, who usually did buildings like that in New York with glass over all the, the faces, um, just had decided that he too would be classical and a very intelligent man, but you know, very ambivalent about, well, should I really be classical? And so in any case, we get uh, that uh, pediment on the top and, uh, and then uh, some aspects below that are kind of classical. Okay, let's keep moving away from these things. I'm overexposing you. Uh, so we'll go ahead, please. Thank you. Okay, I, I was very fortunate at that same year, and the Venturi building with the funny amoebae uh, on it was a facade for a big exhibition in Venice uh, for the presence of the past. So again, this was the first time that architecture had been added to this very important international exhibition. And, uh, and uh, then I was very fortunate as a young man at the time uh, to be asked to be one architect uh, who would make a facade within this long, skinny uh, building uh, that we had at our disposal. Uh, I had, was also fortunate that I, I was uh, there in Rome, happened to be there during that year when I had a Rome Prize at the American Academy. And that was a, a big change for me or development because uh, here I had been doing these kind of what were called postmodern styles of architecture, trying to understand, but also feeling a little um, uh, embarrassed about using these old elements uh, so that you make them into little jokes. I never made them as jokey as what we were just looking at. But nonetheless, this in Rome, having that full year to really work on it, and the project that I did was is a, a hypothetical project for a Catholic church in the center of Rome itself that we see on the right. Uh, and that, uh, of course, incorporates things like the Solomonic columns that uh, I'm sure you've seen uh, in, in uh, various uh, churches. Uh, and then also the contrast of that with heavy Doric columns, the yellow ones here, uh, which uh, makes a, a real juxtaposition between those two uh, 
items, those two structural items. Uh, and then when uh, they invited me and others uh, for this exhibition, uh, where we saw Venturi's things and 18 other elevations like that, uh, then I decided to use the elements that I had been working on paper and make them, even though this was very transitory, uh, and uh, make it uh, uh, into something three-dimensional. So that's what we're seeing on the left there with paintings, uh, in addition of architettura, the, uh, bringing in the idea of the important uh, kind of uh, person who is really uh, the motivation for architecture and inspiration. Uh, and then on the left, you can't see it well, just quickly describe it, uh, would be uh, the good side of a, a architectural um, I, idea. Uh, and then the fellow that you may be able to see on the right with the gray uh, garments, uh, he was error. Because uh, I just wanted to say, we, you know, when we're doing things, and throughout life, in fact, you don't get over it, uh, but you make errors. And then you also make things that are positive and good. And you have to begin, to whatever your fields are, uh, to determine uh, how to be autodidactic, you might say, but also critical uh, about what you're doing. Next, please. Now, this postmodernism uh, is also illustrated in the United States. Uh, it, it, it was particularly took on in the United States, in fact. Uh, and so we have a more recent building, uh, about 15 years now, a federal building uh, located in Tuscaloosa, uh, which is uh, a wonderful building uh, made in limestone uh, and uh, serving all kinds of functions uh, from the federal government uh, for the people of the um, community. Uh, but the central part, which of course is large and uh, the most, uh, the most uh, remarkable of all, as well as expensive, uh, the upper portions would be the, uh, the juries and so forth. So uh, the building uh, is you know, an upstanding sort of building for a traditional community, uh, and yet something that was uh, done and paid for by our taxpayer money. Uh, but I think that I would rather pay a lot of money for the upper building uh, than the lower one. The lower one is part, which again is part of this uh, kind of very strong uh, worldwide movement uh, that, uh, that does not want to, the architect here, uh, does not want you to walk up to it and feel like uh, traditionally uh, buildings for the government uh, would, would give you a sense of solidity and so forth. It's all about unpeeling and, and materials that are rather ephemeral. I'll just say too, just recently uh, they've been completed. Uh, the other thing that's really wonderful about uh, the Tuscaloosa building uh, is that they, we have, uh, we all pay 1% uh, for art on these buildings. Uh, in terms of our taxes, the part of that goes to this. And uh, unfortunately, with buildings like this that we're seeing at the uh, left, uh, the, the, the buildings, uh, excuse me, the elements that are there, like sculptures and so forth, are just very negative pieces. They have nothing to do with the uh, government. They have nothing to do with kind of making us feel uh, good about our taxes, uh, for example. Um, <laughs> Whereas in this case, uh, uh, I was out on a committee at this point and uh, attended a number of uh, decision-making uh, uh, for the building in terms of the artistic work that we're seeing on the lower right. I know it's hard to see there. Uh, but there is subject, there's content uh, in the work. In this case, uh, it's uh, pushing through the, the, the uh, resistance uh, for an African-American woman to go uh, into the uh, public buildings at that period of time of the 1960s. Uh, and uh, so it's a, good si it's a good sign, but it's also one of about 12 uh, paintings of this sort that go through uh, aspects of the entire uh, community. Next, please. Now, Vitruvius, who I already mentioned, and um, uh, is actually coming back, too, uh, so that it's I won't even try to think about how and why this is happening, but it's a change of a societal point of view, I think. Uh, it's very small now still, and most people don't recognize it. 
but it would be similar to the kind of literature and the approaches, I think, to literature that uh, you are all fortunate to be having here. Uh, so I, there are a couple of older ones from 1900, uh, just shown here, uh, but uh, all of the rest are a, about a half of the new editions of Vitruvius. And Vitruvius, yes, he's Roman, uh, but he's a holistic uh, person in terms of his, his uh, approach to life, I'm sure, and also to architecture. And it's the only uh, book from antiquity, and there were quite a few, uh, that survived uh, throughout the Middle Ages, say, or uh, other periods, earlier periods of time, uh, so that for whatever reason that those early uh, manuscripts were available, uh, copies were made throughout the medieval time, and uh, then uh, it was extremely important during the Renaissance, not surprisingly. Next, please. So if you see Vitruve, pick it up. Uh, Books are really cheap these days, and uh, maybe some of those would be if you're interested in this subject. Now, uh, here we've got, uh, we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about uh, classical architecture and then move on to uh, the aspects of this recent development of interest in uh, the traditional Romanesque uh, as well as classical. Classical, of course, we, uh, has a lot of different expressions, but uh, it's about uh, the column, uh, the regularity, and uh, the uh, strength of the building. And these are illustrations I did for uh, a book about Vitruvius some years ago. Uh, but there are basically, for Vitruvius, two types of architecture. Actually, I'll quiz you there, this just easily. Uh, the lower ones in white, uh, what type of architecture is that? What family of architecture? Doric. All right, that's uh, the Dorians, uh, related to that name anyway. Uh, and then the upper one, anyone? Maybe it says. Oh, yeah, they say there too. Okay, it, uh, the matter of exclusion, we talked about uh, the Doric, so what's, what else is there? Ionic, great, Ionic. And uh, so in any case, these are architectural expressions uh, which come from two different Greek cultures. Uh, the Ionian on the east uh, part of Greece and antiquity, and the Doric, which would be around Athens and uh, that region uh, in, in antiquity. And, and still, of course, many buildings exist in both cases. Uh, but those were coming from different cultures, and they were also expressing ideas. Uh, so the Doric uh, is very stolid and very simple, relatively, and the Ionic is more uh, well, just more comfy, uh, you might say. It certainly has this quality of a capital, which has uh, the volutes and so forth, uh, and it uh, it's to, tends to be more vertical. We have the next, please. And so those are two languages of architecture, and uh, at various periods of time, uh, then they became interfused and, and so forth, uh, and many new directions or developments were made for uh, Greek architecture. Uh, now on the left, uh, you've saw this before, you'll see it a few times here, but this is the larger one. Uh, the drawing that I did here was to show not only the proportion of the uh, Ionic, uh, which for Vitruvius uh, would, would be a very elegant one, and uh, this, these are his proportions that he describes, uh, but also uh, they are uh, the uh, type of, of uh, design in which the columns in the center are farther apart, and then the next two or, or the next four, if it's a wider column, uh, are more narrow. And that was kind of to open up the building, to make it more accessible if you're going on axis, uh, and that was, uh, comes to us from Vitruvius. Uh, and uh, so we're very fortunate from him because he's very meticulous. And he's, he, for architecture, for him, was also machines for warfare and so forth. But they're all divided into different chapters or books uh, in the, in the uh, work. Uh, on the right is another larger picture for Vitruvius uh, in terms of the Ionic architecture. And so we're seeing uh, elements that uh, may be very familiar with uh, for you. Uh, again, 
uh, the volume, excuse me, the columns themselves, the capitals, and then particular aspects of the entablature, the beams that rest upon them. Next, please. Uh, up here, though, now we're seeing uh, ionic architecture still. Uh, but uh, on the left, upper left, we're looking at a drawing that shows what Vitruvius said you shouldn't do. Now, no one thinks that you should make drawings of what it should do, and I must say I'm proud. There are many, many wonderful uh, Im images in books uh, going back to the Renaissance of Vitruvius's ideas, but no one ever, as far as I have seen, tell you what not to do. Uh, and so, for example, the Ionic architecture on the right should never have a triglyph on it. That's Doric stuff. And uh, likewise, the, um, uh, the ones on the left uh, shouldn't have dentals, those little tooth-like things at the top. Uh, and so uh, this is just a comment that he makes because he's interested in reestablishing in Rome uh, the, the decorum of what architecture should be, and that the grammar of architecture, we often call it, uh, is, is said properly so that it doesn't become just mushed together out of ignorance or out of meanness somehow. So that, that was what that was for, but then another aspect in terms of the meaning of these different sorts of architecture uh, would be on the lower part uh, here, on the, on the uh, bright part, uh, the Doric, uh, the ionic above, that's more elegant. And finally, the one, one that I haven't talked about, the Corinthian, uh, which would be uh, the most elegant, you might say, and delicate of all. But what Vitruvius uses in his text here in describing these three uh, is to show the personifications of very well-known people or gods uh, in antiquity. Uh, so in the bottom, we've got Hercules. Okay, that's strong, no question about that. And also Mars, naturally. But he also includes, and this won't be surprising for you who are studying classics, in Athena or uh, Minerva, uh, this very strong woman who was intellectually uh, uh, strong as well as uh, had a lot of stamina. Okay, going up to the next level then in terms of the hierarchy, we've got uh, kind of a, uh, well, I'll just say a little bit effeminate guy in the middle uh, who likes to drink a lot. Who's that? Dionysius. Dionysius, thank you. And then two women uh, on either side here who are strong uh, women uh, in terms of different uh, from Athena, certainly. And this Ionic architecture is appropriate uh, for them or their characters. Uh, and finally, at the very top, we've got Athena, uh, no, no, pardon me, that's absolutely wrong, quite the opposite. Uh, uh, who is that? Please help me, I'm drawing a blank. Venus de Milo, that's right, or Aphrodite. Uh, uh, well, anyway, Venus is good, sorry. And, and two other females there on the top for the Ionic, excuse me, for the um, Corinthian. Next, please. Okay, I'm just going to go through these really fast because I want to get into the um, church things. Uh, but in any case, this is a house that we built uh, for ourselves in South Bend. Uh, and really what I was doing there, having kind of gotten a, a really good idea of what Vitruvius is saying, is translating that into an actual building with the portico there in the front. Uh, so that's, uh, that was uh, really terrific because it gelled a lot in my mind for what Vitruvius was saying, uh, but also was a uh, kind of a celebration of his importance. Next, please. Uh, here the building again, a little closer. Uh, but just below uh, is one of a number of other projects that I fortunately, both teaching and, and having the practice, have been able to um, use, uh, develop. Uh, so these are ga galleries at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. Uh, and this is the American Wing. Uh, and uh, so I worked with the curators there to, uh, just a little vignette here, but to find uh, a type of architecture that would uh, reflect uh, the American classicism of, uh, say, 1820 uh, to 30 to 40, just before the Civil War. Next, please. Now, here we can kind of make a segue into uh, the idea of 
not only working on church projects, but also uh, ones that are working and uh, responding to uh, the Romanesque style. I was very uh, happy, of course, delighted and, and amazed to get a telephone call uh, from a, well, from the, one of the uh, main people in the United States, the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, uh, and this was years ago now, uh, almost 20, and uh, he was describing that uh, he wanted to talk to me about the possibility of uh, building a new seminary, uh, which uh, was in the Midwest, and uh, the uh, idea is that since I had never designed a seminary before, is what he said, uh, then we'd like you to do some sketches so that we uh, could get a sense of how you might approach this. So, of course, that was a great opportunity. And so I came up with the drawing on the upper left side, uh, which is, is that a classical building? It's symmetrical. I mean, that's, these aren't only things, but anyway, it's clearly symmetrical. There is a wing that continues to the right of that picture that's identical to the other one. Uh, and then there are these wings, and then there are little temples on either end. And then oh, at the top of the center of the building is uh, the Lysicrates Monument, of course. What else do you do? Okay, so there it is. Well, I sent it uh, to uh, the Monsignor, and about two weeks were coming by, and I thought, oh, this is over. Uh, really disappointed. Uh, but then I got a call. And he said, well, we would like you to be our architect, but we don't like the classical. Uh, we want the Romanesque. So uh, that, of course, I, I, I didn't say anything for about 15 seconds, and then fortunately I could respond. I was just so amazed that uh, they would still be interested in, frankly. Uh, and so what, uh, finally, after about 12 years, uh, we developed uh, the design and construction of the, um, of the building you're seeing at the right. So it's a real contrast, of course, in terms of an asymmetrical building, which really made so much more sense in a, uh, a seminary situation in which, uh, say, the dormitories uh, have a very different character and uh, practical aspect, uh, say, as opposed to the, as opposed to the uh, church. So in this case, the church, which is the last portion to be built, uh, is there on the right, uh, kind of a Romanesque uh, basilica type. Uh, we actually never built the, the um, uh, tower there, and uh, I, it, oh, this is just a little joke on me. Uh, I had that very early on in the early uh, sketches for this, and uh, of course the, the uh, uh, members of the priestly fraternity uh, just thought it would be wonderful to have a tower there. And it took me about 12 years uh, to convince them, not that they couldn't afford it, I would never take that tack, uh, but that it just wasn't necessary and so forth. So uh, you have to be careful sometimes, and here for me, culpa mea, uh, to uh, you know, just be so excited and to put the, something like that tower up there uh, without being a little more prudent as to what, as nice as it would be, uh, uh, it would, would be too much expensive for their budget. Okay, now we're looking at a couple of other things that I like, especially on the left there. Uh, in the Midwest, there are wonderful fabricators of different materials, but we're also fortunate uh, to have very good deposits of stone. Uh, and so this uh, shows Father Van Vliet there uh, before, of course, the, the um, column shafts are put in place, but they're on the shop of the company that uh, made them, carved them. And uh, in any case, uh, they are a uh, wonderful uh, structure to be able to use in this area. And then in terms of uh, works of art, uh, and uh, here we've got you know, some work of my son in terms of the sculpture, uh, but this is the work of James Langley, who's a wonderful Catholic painter, uh, and he was commissioned by the uh, group to uh, have a very monumental uh, building of Our Lady of Guadalupe, painting, I should say. Next, please. Uh, the interior of the church itself uh, is shown, of course, on the left uh, before it was completed, uh, but a draw type of drawing that one makes in order to uh, not only talk through uh, the potential of uh, the chapel in this case, uh, but then also to uh, be sure that the, that the client 
knows and understands what is being done here <coughs> in terms of its appearance. Uh, so it uh, was really with a few tiny changes uh, exactly the model that we built with. Next, please. Uh, this is a photograph of the um, bulk of the monastery. Again, I mentioned that the uh, church was deferred until the very end of it, and of course they were able to use uh, areas as temporary chapels, <coughs> like on the corner here. Uh, but that is the uh, material and the uh, layout. As you can see, of course, uh, on the left side especially, uh, is the repetition of rooms for the cells of the, um, of the seminarians, and uh, then more institutional uh, rooms uh, beyond. There's a nice, also a nice uh, cloister here. Thank you. Next, please. Uh, the other project that has uh, been very parallel and kind of was a segue from the fraternity op opportunity uh, is uh, the Abbey uh, at uh, Clear Creek, uh, so-called, the Annunciation Abbey more uh, formally. Uh, and this is a group uh, which you may be familiar with, uh, but a group of, um, of young priests who came from France uh, to establish a new monastery uh, from their mother house at Fongambeau. Uh, but the impetus to this was really a group of American uh, young men uh, who were intrigued uh, by the uh, monastery in France. And they would go from Thomas Aquinas College or other uh, colleges as groups uh, to visit uh, this place and to have a sense of, well, as they called it, uh, what, was, what was a monastic community like in the Middle Ages? Uh, it wasn't really, of course, uh, changed and so forth to some degree, but it was the rigor, the uh, sense to say nothing of being located within an authentic um, Romanesque church in the center of France. Uh, so this project is still going on, will we'll, uh, continue way past my uh, life, uh, but uh, it's a project that has really been fully uh, planned out for whatever it may be in the next 40 or 50 years, perhaps. Uh, and also the monks are uh, building it uh, in various uh, phases, uh, not surprisingly. Uh, but one illustration is, for example, the photograph on the lower right, uh, which would be the nave uh, looking toward the uh, sanctuary of the church. Uh, but the monks had the good idea uh, when they had enough money to build it was not to build the entire vertical height uh, for, because they couldn't afford at that time uh, to build more than four bays of the nave, uh, but in fact to cut it, let's say the illustration would be like at the beam here, and uh, we're building everything below down to the foundation and putting on a, a temporary roof, and then eventually when we have the money. All of you guys can go upstairs now because we've been able to build it, right? Does that make some sense? Uh, but in any case, uh, the monks are extremely, extremely uh, patient. Uh, they've grown tremendously, but the first group who came uh, were a group of French, about six, and of uh, Americans who had uh, become so uh, interested in, and uh, focused on the monastery that they became parts of the community. They always hoped to move and build something more in another place uh, in the US, and now that's happening. But also a lot of people, young men, are very interested. And so I was there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they're up to about uh, 75, no, pardon me, I'm exaggerating unintentionally, uh, about 55 uh, there. Uh, so it's, a, it's a really a strong, vital group. You may be well aware of it. Uh, so the pictures on the upper portion, though, are uh, to see, well, what uh, may the extensions be in the future, uh, and, uh, and also once they can build the upper part of the church here on the right side, um, how will that look? Next, please. Uh, so the, the uh, isolation here is very interesting. It uh, certainly has strong parallels with the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, the previous project, uh, but that is not a cloistered community, this is. Uh, so here on the left you see 
the Thursday walk, uh, where there's very large property, so that they're, uh, they still have the privacy uh, there in that location. Uh, but they're heading back to, uh, for an uh, a, um, afternoon. Uh, and uh, they're beyond, at this time it's finished, but nonetheless that building was rising up uh, in construction. And the idea of all of these buildings is within the kind of building that we can build, uh, based on limited uh, budgets, but nonetheless to build the most durable uh, structures uh, that are at all possible. And in that sense, too, the, uh, in both cases, uh, in uh, of the, these two uh, monasteries, you might say, uh, the people who are working within the communities uh, of um, construction, for example, are just so charged. Uh, and uh, whenever we have to be off on this project, uh, they just uh, are so happy when we come back and the, the monks have the money to be able to build another portion uh, that the excitement and the positiveness uh, is not only for the first moment, but it continues through the whole construction. Next, please. Uh, some more details. Uh, these are uh, up on the left, as you, up on the right, pardon me, as you can see, is the actual limestone carving and capital, in this case, for the great portal uh, to the entrance to the church, uh, with uh, my son there, whom you'll meet uh, before too long. Uh, and uh, then some other vignettes uh, looking. But the, the way I'd like to sort of finish this is the uh, the quality of execution of work, and this again, I've said this before, but uh, the people who are working here are just so delighted uh, to be working, and it sounds like I'm kind of telling a story, but uh, it's so true, and the, the positiveness of it, uh, probably the complexity of the uh, work, uh, this is on the interior of the apse of the book, uh, excuse me, of the church, uh, but they, they just really do love uh, the challenges of it and uh, often come fo forward as well with some good ideas of how to do one thing a little differently uh, for better, better, betterness. Uh, next, please. So I'd just like to end with a couple of words about our school at Notre Dame. Uh, there's a group of uh, fourth-year students on the left uh, we have had a group for uh, 100 years now in the School of Architecture, uh, but thinking back to the last 50 years, uh, students who have been working on a, with a five-year program of architecture, which means as undergraduates then uh, they can go out and eventually get a license and work in offices and then perhaps uh, open their own offices. Uh, but we've also more recently opened a, mat a school for the um, uh, master's program, and uh, that has been another very, very strong uh, element. So uh, just two quick uh, pictures of uh, some of the work in the last year or so from uh, the graduate students. Uh, and uh, I always keep hearing these funny things in, column in the, uh, the uh, uh, building itself, uh, students thinking they're talking to each other and undergraduates saying, oh, we are so much better than those graduate students. Uh, so that's just a lovely kind of, uh, of self-appraisal. Uh, and uh, I wouldn't say either is better than the other. Of course, that would be silly. But uh, nonetheless, we're very blessed. And it's a place like this for architecture and training, uh, as well as the development of uh, now many firms in the United States and in Britain. That's, it's the Anglo movement, uh, which uh, shows that there's going to be great opportunities and and good things changing in terms of the culture of architecture. Thank you.